about section 45 today. Joseph Smith's translating the Bible. Yeah, and a lot of the Bible appears in it. I'm interested in kind of uh, peeling back the surface and seeing where those passages come from and what they mean in this Latter-day context. Looking at how it's going to be applied for today mm -hmm. and also the preparation is necessary. It's going to be fun to look at. Yeah. Uh, so welcome. Before we get into our discussion, should we follow up on what we read? Let's do it. So we are in Doctrine and Covenant section 45. We're specifically looking at the Lord asking us to hearken to his words and follow his teachings. Yes, he also teaches about prophecies of the second coming and the signs that will proceed when he arrives. And then the Lord is going to appear in his glory and he's gonna gather all of the righteous throughout the world. And there's a lot of things we can talk about in this section. It's, it's pretty dense, but we're gonna focus on two things in particular. The first is what are the signs of the times and we'll understand that broadly. And then what do we do to live in the last days? How do we prepare for the Lord's coming? So this is an extremely fun topic. It's one that we have a lot of interest in. And so we chose one of our best, Matthew Gray. Matthew, if you could come join us up here at the front, we'd really appreciate it. Welcome. And guide us through these chapter, this section. Thank you, really enjoy being here. So Matthew Gray is an associate professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He teaches primarily courses in New Testament. His PhD is in ancient Mediterranean religions with a focus on Jewish studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I know what you're thinking. Why didn't we get somebody from Duke? But give Matt a chance. I hope you take that out. <laughs> and I promise you won't be disappointed. So welcome, Matt. We're looking forward to some of your... Thank you. Yeah, we'll have to see how the next basketball season yeah. goes between Duke yeah. and North Carolina. <laughs> right, exactly. Daniel's from Duke, in case you didn't yeah. know that. So. Do you guys even watch basketball? I don't. No. Just <laughs> <laughs> saying, I'm just... We, we, I don't know why I wouldn't think that they would, but... We read the scriptures. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so before we get into our, our, our specific topics, Matt, I'm wondering if... Did anything stand out to you in this section? Anything you thought was significant or anything that will help us kind of navigate our way through it? Yeah, so I come at it as someone who really focuses a lot of my work on the Bible and the world of the Bible. And so from that perspective, this section is really interesting. It's a revelation that Joseph Smith receives in March of 1831, when he is right in the middle of translating the Bible himself. He's right at that time when he's between his translation of the Old Testament and his translation of the New Testament. And right in that period, he receives this revelation, which itself draws heavily upon the language from the Bible. So throughout this entire revelation, Joseph is regularly drawing upon voices and passages from biblical writings and then applying them to a Latter-day context. And so I, that's something that I really enjoy about this section is being able to identify the biblical passages and see how this revelation then applies those passages to a Latter-day setting. Thanks, thanks Matt. So should we jump right into it then? Let's begin talking a little bit about the signs of the times and yep. um, what's going on here. So Matt, I know you said that there are a lot of different biblical passages that appear in this uh, section. Talk to us a little bit about where they are, from what authors they come from, that kind of thing. So this section really is a fascinating collection of biblical passages. Starting with the first 10 verses, roughly, this revelation draws very heavily on language found in the writings of John. So for example, we get various titles for Christ found in this material where he quotes from 1 John chapter 2 by quote, calling Jesus uh, being the advocate with the Father, or quoting from the book of Revelation, calling Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, or quoting from the Gospel of John, where he refers to Jesus as being the light that shines in the darkness. After this short kind of introductory section, really the kind of the core of this revelation is the way in which it draws heavily upon a discourse or a sermon 
that Jesus gives to his disciples on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem during that final week of his life before his crucifixion as found in Matthew chapter 24. And in that chapter, uh, while the Savior and the disciples are in Jerusalem for that final week of his life, they're gathered on the Mount of Olives in a bit of a private setting. They're overlooking the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus had just made a comment saying that the Jerusalem temple would be torn down, uh, that not one stone would be left upon another. And this, of course, was shocking to the disciples. They said, tell us when will these things be? And then their follow-up question was, tell us about the signs of your coming at the end of the age. Mm -hmm. And so in this sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew 24, he basically addresses those two questions. First, talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Romans, which will eventually happen in the year 70 AD, about 40 years from the time this conversation is happening. So in other words, in the lifetime of these first century disciples. And then the second half of the sermon shifts over to that second question. And so that is when we get a lot of material about the coming of the Son of Man in glory and how we can be prepared for that time when it unexpectedly happens. So there's both a first century context to this sermon and a latter day context for this sermon. And what Joseph Smith's revelation does here is it kind of makes that clear. It draws heavily upon Matthew 24, highlighting the first century significance and then shifting over to the significance of that sermon for the latter days. I love that, Matt. And I was thinking about a quote that we have from, again, one of our early apostles where he says, rather than trying to find out what the world is teaching about the second coming, rather than watching the news, rather than, than getting all involved in what magazines are saying or the internet is saying or Facebook or anything else, he says, read the 24th chapter of Matthew, particularly the inspired version as contained in the Pearl of Great Price. Then read section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord, not man, has documented the signs of the times. And then he says, now turn to section 101. Turn to section 103 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord is guiding us step by step, recounting the events leading up to the coming of the Savior. And then finally, turn to the promises the Lord makes to those who keep the commandments when these judgments descend upon the wicked as set forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 38, which we've talked about previously. We are invited by the Lord and by his leaders to make sure that we understand the scriptural part well, that we are not being succumbed by or taken over by the world's teachings. The world would lead it by fear. Our God never leads by fear. So I just love that there's so much hope in things that are in here. And this is what we need to know what the scriptures are saying. But that's a really great point that, that I try to make with my students as well in a New Testament class. Because when we come to Matthew chapter 24, that's really the first time in the gospel narrative where Jesus himself is talking about his coming at the end of the world. And uh, I always try to help my students to see that there's often a huge difference between the way Jesus talks about those events and the way we sometimes do uh, culturally speaking today. Because the reality is there's a lot of hope and a lot of excitement in these conversations from Jesus's perspective. And I, I think it's really fun to sometimes contrast those two approaches. It's like Christ is saying, I am coming. And the world is saying it's the end of the world. Like it's, it's a very different way of seeing the second coming, I think. And it sounds like, I mean, one of the keys for understanding this section, at least insofar as I understand you, is recognizing that these prophecies have fulfillment both in the past and they can in the future. Would that be accurate? Yes, that's okay. exactly right. Mm -hmm. So here in section 45, for example, uh, if you look at, you know, right on starting in verses 15 and 16, Jesus tells us in the Revelation, and I'm summarizing a little bit, paraphrasing, but basically what he says is, I'm now going to share with you, if you read in verses 15 and 16, the prophecy that I gave to my disciples when we were on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and then the whole next section of this Revelation 
is his referring to that first century fulfillment mm -hmm. of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Romans. And so Jesus is telling them all of these things that are going to happen within the next 40 years for them. And that's the original setting of this sermon. And then it's not until after that that he shifts over to the end times scenarios of the events leading up to the coming of the Son of Man at the end of the age. So let me ask a question. I mean, scripture is a living and transformative force in our lives because it can apply to us. Specifically, this idea that prophecies or scriptures can mean one thing in one time and also another thing in another time. So have there been times in your life when uh, scripture has meant one thing, maybe when you're at age 13 and another thing when you're age 20, where you've come to it with new eyes or you've seen it in a new perspective? Tell me a little bit about that. How has scripture uh, been a living force for you? In, in Alma 7, it talks about how Christ will take upon him, our pains and our afflictions and our temptations, everything like that. I remember first reading that scripture and just thinking like, oh, that's so cool that Christ can do that for other people. You know, that there's so many people going through um, such hard pains and such hard afflictions, but I'm not, I'm, I'm fine, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel his love, but I'm not, I don't need that, that power from him. Then later in my life, when I did start to have those moments, I, I realized that I do need it and everybody does. Christ's atonement is form-fitting to every one of our circumstances. And so that, that verse really took on a new meaning to me and it, it affected me a lot. Excellent, thanks. So Matt, you began off telling us that there were different Bible passages that appear in this section. We got to Matthew 24. I'm wondering if you can take us through to the end. What else is going on here, biblically speaking? Yeah, so actually uh, we left off about halfway through uh, his use of Matthew 24. Uh, there's this kind of critical, pivotal moment where in section 45, right around verse 25, if you're following along, where it, after talking about the first century fulfillment of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, it then shifts uh, slightly, we're still in Matthew 24, but it then shifts over to this time after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, uh, a time that uh, we refer to here, drawing briefly on a passage from Luke 21, the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And in Luke 21, uh, Jesus seems to be saying that the time of the Gentiles, meaning the Roman occupation in Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple, which did happen historically, but this section pivots a little bit and talks about the times of the Gentiles as being an entire era of gospel preaching, right? Where the gospel message will go to non-Jews and to those of, of different descents. And that's really where we then finish the Matthew 24 material and we now shift over to additional biblical passages found from both the Old and the New Testaments. And it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, where we get this image that those righteous who have slept in the grave will rise at that moment. Mm -hmm. And those who are living on the earth at that moment who are righteous will all be caught up to meet Jesus in the clouds together as he descends upon the earth. Mm -hmm. So that's language from Paul in 1 Thessalonians that this revelation now adds to its growing list mm. of end times biblical materials. Matt, it's been so nice to be able to walk through it from a biblical side. I love looking at this righteous dead, and then we look at, there are some parts about the wicked, and there are some parts, and we even have um, the Jewish people who will recognize Christ. But I also love in verses um, 58 and 59, where it talks about the children. I just love the idea of the children during when Christ comes, and it says, and the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. For the Lord shall be in their midst and his glory shall be upon them and he will be their king and their lawgiver. And maybe if we consider all of ourselves children when Christ comes again, I don't know, but I love the idea of Christ being the one who was, who was in control and these children finally having a chance to have this real righteous ruler. So it's been a great discussion on uh, the second coming. Thank you so much for Matt for that first part.
Let's now change over to the next topic, which is living in the last days. And Matt, can you just start us off with this? Sure. So after Jesus talked to his disciples about his unexpected coming or the coming of the Son of Man in glory at an hour that you think not, uh, he then transitions to a series of parables that are all about preparation for that unexpected second coming event. And the first parable that Matthew 25 gives in that context is the parable of the 10 virgins. And that's exactly the parable that section 45 goes to next, starting in verse 56 and following. If I'm not mistaken, the parable of the 10 virgins in the New Testament, it doesn't give an interpretation of what that parable is specifically, but it seems to be here, the Lord is giving a little bit more of an interpretation, correct? That's right. In Matthew 25, the parable, of course, is a parable of of 10 virgins who are waiting outside of a marriage feast, but the bridegroom is still out with his friends. They're not sure when he's going to come back, just like we're not sure when Jesus is going to come back. But five of those had enough oil to keep their lamps burning for whenever that unexpected event would come, but five let the oil run out. And so in this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the revelation clarifies what the oil represents by calling it the Holy Spirit. So the message seems to be those who are caught with the oil in their lamps or caught with the Spirit in their lives, it'll be a wonderful moment to have the bridegroom appear at that unexpected hour. The parable seems to indicate that we get ready for it by making sure that we have the Spirit in our lives, just like the those who had the oil in their lamps ready for that unexpected moment. It's really good to see it that way, Matt. And I would say, you know, we talk a lot about how do we share our, our oil with others and can we or can we not? In this parable, it seems like the Lord is saying, you know, you individually need to be spiritually self-reliant. You individually need to be prepared for this day. In some ways, it seems cruel that you say, you know, here we have these 10 virgins and we have five, just share your oil for heaven's sakes, right? Like I know my neighbors well enough, at least I think I do, that they may be watching this, but if I were to go to them and I, and I were to say, you know what, we ran out of water, they're gonna give us water and we're gonna give them whatever we can physically. But there is a level, and I think that's why that oil is so beautiful. You can't give somebody else the Holy Spirit. You can influence, you can train, you can teach, you can help, you can love, but the individual has to receive the Holy Ghost just as an individual has to receive the oil for that lamp. So in that context then, and since we're talking about preparation for the second coming and President Nelson has talked so much about uh, the second coming, uh, what are you doing in your lives right now? Legitimately, what are you doing uh, to put that oil in your lamp? Or in other words, to receive the Holy Ghost? Yeah, please. For me, I find myself going to the temple a lot. That's where I find myself having the least amount of anxiety. And it's just a really good way to kind of focus myself back on what's important. No matter what else is going on in my life, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the focus is Christ. And when I can bring that focus back, I'm able to really tune into the spirit and really know, okay, what are the next steps I need to take? Um, but I feel like I have a good foundation when I do bring my focus back. Excellent, thank you. Amanda, please. So one thing that I've really been focusing on recently has been in the mornings praying and asking God specifically what I can be doing in that day or that week of how I can come closer to Him and what commandments I can be focusing on. Uh, so for instance, for the commandment, love one another, asking Heavenly Father, help me get experience in this today. Help me learn how to follow this commandment better. And that's really helped me come closer to the Spirit and come closer to our Heavenly Father as I've reached out and tried to find specific ways to follow Him like that. In a sense, the Lord is giving you a drop at a time as you're continuing to know what you can do and what you can do better each day. 
One of the things that stands out to me, and you're talking about this oil and being the spirit is, is a tie into the covenant that we make with Jesus Christ at baptism and then with the sacrament. When we make that promise of the Lord, we, the, the promise that we receive in return, the blessing is that we will always have his spirit to be with us. So if we're worthily participating in the sacrament and keeping our covenants, we are naturally prepared. It, it's, not, it's not like the Lord is saying you, you need to go create a new temple somewhere. You, you need to go do something. He, the Lord isn't asking us to go above and beyond what he's asking us to do. He's simply asking us to keep the covenants that he has already given us and be steady until he comes. And sometimes it's easier said than done, I think. But as we look into our lives and we say, how can I have a greater abundance of the spirit? That's a blessing. But I hope we also recognize as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, by merrily keeping our covenants, by doing our best and referring to and, and depending upon the atonement of Jesus Christ and partaking of the sacrament, we are prepared for his second coming because we're using him in our everyday lives. So I have a question, Barbara. Yeah, Daniel, please. Yeah, so, I'm, as, I mean, just basing, uh, building off what everybody's been talking about, uh, about cultivating the spirit and some of the fruits of the spirit, one of which being love. As I was going through some of the signs of the times, I, I was looking at Matthew 24 and DNC 45 to see if they lined up. And one difference I found was in Doctrine and Covenants 45, verse 27. So it says, and the love of men shall wax cold and iniquity shall abound. So ostensibly here, two different things happening, not necessarily related to one another. But then you go to uh, Matthew 24, 12, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So it reads a little bit differently. And it says, because people have iniquity, they are unable to love. Um, so my question is for you, and as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, what is it about sin that uh, prevents us from loving in the way Christ would want us to love? Yeah, Andy. From my experience with, uh, with sin, it's, it's oftentimes very selfish. It, it, it's self-gratifying. What is good for me at the moment, oftentimes, mm -hmm. and it's, it's very inward focused. It's not considering the consequences and an impact on others, which is quite opposite to what Jesus Christ is, is teaching us to do, where we should look outside of ourselves and try to serve and bless the lives around us to find the true joy in life. Yeah, excellent. It's interesting, Daniel. I, I, when you asked that question, I immediately, I immediately thought of Alma speaking to his son Shiblon. Mm -hmm. And he says to Shiblon, he's talking about missionary work, and he says, use boldness but not overbearing. But then he says, and also see that you bridle all your passions that ye may be filled with love. With yeah. love. And that tie-in of, of sin and, and love is very strong. In section 76, the Doctrine and Covenants, which, which we haven't gotten to yet, it talks about Satan overcoming people as the sons of perdition. But when we are in charge, we are overcoming Satan and we're overcoming the sins of the world. And that gives us a greater capacity to love as Christ did who overcame all things. Mm -hmm. So that ability to be in control and that ability to have God's power, I think increases our ability to love as Christ infinitely did so. We're not being in a sense captured by anything else or bound in any way. Yeah. Lo que dice Bárbara me recuerda a una escritura que está en Doctrinas y Convenios 121, el 45 y el 46 y que habla acerca de que cuando entonces nosotros estamos siendo virtuosos va a llegar a nosotros la caridad, ¿no? Y luego de eso también viene el Espíritu Santo. Y es, es simplemente así, si no estamos cerca de Dios porque hemos pecado, obviamente estamos concentrados en nosotros, pero también está, nos está faltando esa caridad que nos va a ayudar a ver cómo podemos servir a los demás y también cómo podemos amar a Dios para seguir sus mandamientos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it really goes back to this idea of love actually being one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? If we're being righteous, we dispose ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and having that Holy Spirit enables us to love in the way that we're supposed to.
she was talking about section uh, 121 verses 45 and 46, where it just basically says, let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith and let virtue garner thy thoughts unceasingly and confidence all act strong. It's a great tie-in, great, great reference. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one last comment. You know, for the whole time on your mission, you're thinking about other people and how you can help everybody else. But then when you get back, you're like, oh, okay, thinking about me, like my life. Oh, I need to like go back to school. I need to do this and this and this. And I had to find the balance to like think about, oh, how can I help my neighbors now? I noticed how awesome and how light I feel when I think about others. It's a great comment, and especially, I mean, it ties back into section 45. Um, specifically, we're talking about verse 65. With one heart and with one mind, we're going to gather the riches. And it's this idea of gathering and being selfless. In the gathering process, people have to learn to put their own, not needs, but put their own desires in a sense and put their own selfish things aside so that everyone can be a part of this community. And and the gathering is literally a part of this building Zion. And that's what they're trying to do. You see that in verse 67. And the glory of the Lord shall be there and the terror of the Lord also shall be there insomuch that the wicked will not come into it and it shall be called Zion. And one other thing that I think is interesting with that idea of Zion is where it says in verse 69, and there shall be gathered unto it every nation under heaven and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. Uh, that's an interesting insight as we're talking about the unselfishness of people and what is going to be, take, what is going to be required of people in order to, to have Zion. They have to love each other to that level. And I think that there might be a video, a question regarding uh, Zion. Hi, we're the Ibarra family from Gilbert, Arizona. And we have a question about Doctrine and Covenants section 45 where it talks about a gathering of saints to Zion and to the city of New Jerusalem. And we'd like to know how much of that is a literal gathering versus a spiritual gathering. Thank you. I love the wave there at the end, that's cute. So that's a great question, Uh, thanks for that. Maybe Matt, can you start us off on on that? What are your thoughts on that? Sure, yeah, I I actually think in context of where we are in this revelation, it kind of gets at that question in a really interesting way. in the Revelation, we are right at the very end now, now that we've talked about the second coming and how do we prepare for that, uh, as we're talking about some of the challenges of the world at the end times, uh, the end of this section in 45 talks about fleeing to Zion as a place of refuge. And in the early history of the church, this was very much a literal gathering. In fact, if you look at the language um, in section 45, you'll see a lot of uh, gather from the eastern states to the western states. Keep moving west as the eastern part of the country is engulfed in war and turmoil, things that are coming up uh, in the coming era. Uh, keep gathering with the saints and keep building Zion because Zion will be a refuge uh, from the difficulties of the world around it. And certainly in the early days of the church, a lot of the physical movement of the church, I think, had to do with the literal spirit of gathering as we see in this section. But I think, you know, as we got, have gone through the 20th century and we're now into the 20th, 21st century, uh, the church is more of a global community and we've seen a shift away from an emphasis on a literal physical gathering to a, a flourish where you're planted, uh, more of a, a conversation where no matter where you are in the world, you can build Zion there and that can be your refuge from the storm. And so I think that we see both a literal gathering in the sense of the early church history 
But today we're in an era where I think that we see more of an emphasis currently on a spiritual gathering of building Zion wherever you are in the world. Yeah, in fact, uh, President Harold B. Lee made a statement where he says, the place of the gathering for the Mexican saints is in Mexico. The place for the gathering for the Guatemalan saints is in Guatemala. The place for the gathering for the Brazilian saints is in Brazil. And so it goes throughout the length and breadth of the whole earth. At this time when Joseph Smith is specifically gathering Israel, he is told it's Jackson County, Missouri. I mean, he, he knows exactly where these people are supposed to be gathered together. And there are a lot of prophecies that are going to continue on about Christ coming, and that's where he's going to meet the people, and Adam on Diamond, and the sacrament meeting. We've talked about that a little bit before. But specifically in our day, the Lord has said, at this moment, we don't want everyone gathering to Zion, meaning Jackson County, Missouri. We want you to stay where you are. We want you to be gathering your, and strengthening your stakes and helping people become Zion, build Zion in a sense of where you are. So it's a great question. So, I, so it's, it has both a literal, physical, and spiritual uh, meaning definition in a sense. Absolutely. So this has been a great discussion about living in the last days and I'm, I'm grateful for your comments and insights. I've certainly learned a lot from you today. So thank you, Matt. I really appreciate your help with this discussion. We appreciate all of you being here in the audience with us today. Thank you for your insights, your testimonies. And to those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you sent to us via social media. We'd love to have you in the studio with us sometime, but if you can't join us, we hope you'll watch us next week on Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.